warmed up, let's go to the screen and let's pray our prayer that we pray every week, the Lord's Prayer. Let's look together and we'll pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, what in the world is this barrel about? Well, we're going to begin to try to explain beginning next Sunday, what restoration looks like, not only to the church, but to the people of God. We have spent, today will be the seventh, I think, message where we've talked about God's people in Babylon or God's people under judgment, God's people in bondage. But I want you to remember that Jeremiah, with all of the preaching he did, Ezekiel, with all the preaching that he did, Daniel, with all the preaching that he did about judgment, they all said, but God is going to restore. God is going to restore. In case you haven't cheated and read the end of the book yet, God wins. The devil is defeated. You win. Now, God gave them three commissions, and this is not my sermon. This is just introducing to you where we're going as we wrap this first part up, uh, the first part of, of uh, fighting the good fight of faith. We'll still be talking about that, but we're going to be focusing on, um, uh, th there is the dynamic of living in the dark days. That's where I think we are. But there's also the dynamic of what to do when God begins to breathe recovery into us. And when God sent Judah back into the land, he gave them three assignments. Number one, they were to build, rebuild the temple of God. Loved ones, the number one assignment in every one of our lives, every one of us, the number one thing God does when you become a Christian, when you say, I want my life rebuilt, is the presence of God is restored. That's number one. You and I, you say, boy, I got a lot of work. Nothing's more important than welcoming the presence of God. That's why before he rebuilt the walls, that's why before they would rebuild an army, that's why before they reworked the fields in their fullness, the first thing that Israel did was to rebuild the house of God because a life that is being restored begins with putting God back on the throne. Don't think that you have to get your life straight and then he will come in. He said, I will never reject the one that comes to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. Now, the second thing he was going to tell them to do after they rebuilt the, the house of God, they needed to rebuild the walls of the city. They needed to rebuild the walls of the city. Now, I would have thought that the walls needed to be rebuilt to take care of the temple. But I have long since found out that God is able to take care of himself. And once we put him in the place of centrality, then he does something phenomenal. He begins to work on rebuilding the walls of our lives. I think uh, David, um, nah, 
Jack, Jack Hayford, I think he called it rebuilding the walls of your personality. And he talked about how the people, once they got the presence of God in, the next thing that they were to do is to rebuild their lives so they could become the city and the nation that God had called them to be. Now, the third thing is they were going to restore the culture. Uh, the culture, especially by the Assyrians, the way the Assyrians dealt with things was to destroy the culture so that there was nothing to come back to. So the people of Israel had to come and rebuild a culture, uh, a rebuild a life of holiness. But the thing that I want us to focus in on the next few weeks, oh, and we're going to take a break for Easter and that sort of thing. I know that. But the, the, best, the best thing I know to do to explain to you the way this works is to say, uh, every one of us, our lives is sort of like a whiskey barrel. Now, no, it's not, it's not anything to do with whiskey, um, but it, it's, it's something that we need to understand. This is the way the walls of our lives are. We say, well, I hope none of you are smelling like this too, but uh, we say, we say that our lives are, well, Jesus is here now, Lord, just fill me up. But you've got to remember the walls are down. Some of the walls were untouched. Some of the walls were down just a few feet. Some of the walls were down halfway. Some of the walls were down almost to the ground. But you know what? If I wanted to fill up this barrel, if this is a standard whiskey barrel, holds 53 gallons, you say, well, then, not, then I've got 53 gallons of stuff I can do for the Lord. But not if your walls are down. You see, I've got pieces here. I've got whole sections where I say I'm ready to fill up. But you know what the real actuality is? I can't get any fuller than this right here because there's a gap here. And we have, we have tried to live the Christian life the wrong way, I think, in so many instances. We've said, well, this is my barrel and I'm, I'm a 53-gallon Christian. Well, not till you get the holes fixed. And that thing is called sanctification. It's where God rebuilds the walls of your life and begins to make you what you were destined to be. And that's why Nehemiah had to spend so much time. He rode around the city and he examined the walls every place that he went. And he said, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. The wall's totally missing here. The wall's halfway up here. He said, for us to restore what God intended, We've got to restore the walls and rebuild the walls. You see, you are saved when you get the temple rebuilt. When God comes back into your life, you are saved and you're going to heaven. But there is this thing called sanctification where you begin to rebuild what sin has done in your life. And so many times pastors try to pastor without rebuilding their walls. So many times husbands try to be husbands without rebuilding their walls. So many times churches and denominations try to rebuild uh, or, or try to be something without rebuilding the walls. And I want you, we're not going to talk about it today, but I want you to keep in mind the next phase, God has come. Ooh, that's close. God has come. For those of you that couldn't see, I nearly stepped off there. Um, there's got to be a lesson in that too, but I won't do it today. Um, <laughs> See, we've got to not only say, God, you got to fix this culture. We have to say, God, you've got to fix me. You've got to fix me. 
and so that my light can shine the way it was meant to shine. So we're going to be buddies with this barrel for a few weeks here. And we're going to see God begin to restore the walls of our lives. But today I want to spend one more message on this idea of, uh, of living in adversity, living in under judgment, living when God says it's enough. And when God's judgment comes, I've, I've said it and I still believe it. I believe that the church is under judgment. I believe that. Um, in general, but I, uh, because judgment begins first in the house of God. But I also believe that this is not God's wrath. This is not the full wrath of God. Like we see in the book of Revelation, this is not the end, but this is correction for whoever will let it be correction. Now, we don't always understand what God is doing. I'll tell you something else I want to do next week. You know, we prayed for four, for five years. We prayed for God to, to uh, expose lies and liars. We praised for, prayed for truth to rise up. We prayed for the church to wake up. We prayed for America to know what to do. And God lifted that prayer from my heart as far as a church prayer um, a few weeks ago. But God has put five more things in my heart. And I want to present to you the new prayer challenge that we have. We'll talk about that next week as well. But loved ones, I think before we kind of shift gears and talk about this same, the same general subject, but I want you to know that it is very, very, very easy for us sometimes to see something and totally misunderstand what's going on. I really do believe that the information can seem incredible, but we misinterpret it or we see something and we think this is, this is God speaking and it may well be God speaking. But the question is, what is God saying? Had a friend, he's in heaven now, but he used to tell a story about these two men that were in a bar. They were at opposite ends of the bar. <clears throat> they had been drinking a while and uh, were, were pretty well juiced up. They were about three sheets to the wind. And uh, after they had, uh, as, as um, the book of John says, after they had well drunk, they kind of met together and started a conversation. And uh, one of them looked at the other one and said, uh, you look familiar. And the other one looked at him and said, well, you do too. He said, where are you from? He said, I'm, I'm from a little town from here called Pensacola. And the other one said, I am from Pensacola. It's amazing. And what part of the town are you from? And the other guy says, well, I grew up at East Hill. And he says, I grew up in East Hill. He said, uh, yeah, I lived in East Hill on Young Street. The other guy said, I lived on Young Street part of my life. We had to have seen each other. What school did you go to? Agnes McReynolds. And then I went to Booker T. Washington High School. The guy said, this is unbelievable. He said, I went to Agnes McReynolds. I went to Booker T. Washington High School. This is phenomenal. We must know each other. And then the phone rings. The bartender picks it up. It's his wife. And she says, hi, honey, what you doing? He said, oh, not much. I'm just sitting here watching the McKenzie twins get drunk again. <laughs> Loved ones, 
we, we have been through a year when we've heard a lot, we've been told a lot, we've seen a lot, but I don't know if we're accurately interpreting what we've seen. And I think we need to settle some basics. That's what we've been trying to do over the past year. I told you that I felt the Lord speak to me way back in the summer or late spring and say that the, the preaching over the rest of the year into the beginning of 2021 would be the most important preaching that most pastors have done in their life. Because the pastors have to make decisions on which way the church is going to go. God forbid that we have something as horrendous as 2020 and all we get out of it is we say, you know, thank God that's over. If that's the most we get out of it, then we're missing something of critical importance. God, I do believe that God is bringing a nation under judgment. I do believe that God is bringing the church under judgment, but it's redemptive judgment. As I've said, God is giving us a chance to reboot, to restart, to, to correct our mistakes and to go forward. I think that the foundational thing, we've talked about a lot of things, and, and, and thank you, Pastor Corey, for what you preached last week. That was phenomenal. He had me scared. I thought he was going to preach my message. And then I was going to have to say, now this is, this is the same thing as Corey preached, but this is the way it was meant to be preached. But uh, no, I tell you what, I was, I was sweating because I thought I couldn't say it any better than he said it. But we, we kind of we took a different tack uh, before we got too far into it. But I want to talk to you today about the lost message of the cross. I don't think anything that we will do or be as a church will matter until we decide what we're going to do with the message of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about academically or just on paper. What does the cross really mean? What, what does the cross mean? What does the cross really require of us? I have a friend that said this. He says, it doesn't matter. I mean, he, he actually said these words. He said, it doesn't matter if Jesus was born of a virgin or not. It doesn't matter if the Bible is infallible and inerrant or not. He said, the only thing that matters is that we give people a message of hope that they can cling, uh, that they can cling to. And loved ones, we, we didn't have a good conversation after that. Um, I, mean, I mean, I didn't have a conversation with him after that because I knew there was nothing that was going to be productive uh, that, that came from it. But I, I, I tell you what I believe. I really believe that pastors are selling out the gospel. And I think churches are losing sight of the gospel. And we need to be careful that we don't embrace error in an attempt to, quote, lower the temperature. This is what Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, we think about power of God, we think about spiritual gifts, we think about miracles, we think about the presence of God that we feel during worship. Oh, wasn't today beautiful? Just the way we felt the presence of God. But the scripture says, if you, you know, all that's great. All of that is of God. But if you want to know where the power of God is, it's in the message of the cross. 
A church operates in power depending on what it does with the message of the cross. Uh, Paul said that there would be some who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Growing up as a young Pentecostal, we pointed to all the other churches that weren't Pentecostal. We said, they got a form of godliness, but they're denying the power. No, they, they weren't. I mean, that, that wasn't what that verse was about. I mean, I have known churches that denied the power. But loved ones, when we look at verses like that, we, the question we've got to ask is not how many people have goosebumps, not how many signs and wonders occur as important as signs and wonders are. The question we have to ask is what is the message of the cross? What are we preaching about the cross? For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Um, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. I love the, uh, this translation. King James says, through the folly of preaching. I, I always thought when I was a young preacher that what I was doing was stupid because the Bible says it was folly. You know, get up there and preach with your hair in your eyes and spit and stomp. And oh, yeah, that that must be foolish. But loved ones, it's the, the scripture never calls the act of preaching foolish. It is always the message of preaching that the world calls foolish. The message of preaching, the message that we preach that is called foolishness. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. He says, this group demands this, this group demands this, but we don't please either one of them. We preach Christ crucified and it is a stumbling block to the Jews and it is folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Now, he didn't say there aren't any. But not many of you were wise. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. <laughs> now, God can use you if you're wise and of noble birth. God can use you if you're powerful. He just has to work a little harder to do it. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. That Greek word is the word immoron. Immoron. Guess what English word we get that from that. And that's what we are in the eyes of the world. We're morons. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. <coughs> Here's our central truth truth today. Uh, this is from Bruce Shelley's church history book. Christianity 
is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. Christianity is the only major religion to have at the heart of its existence, the core of its message, the humiliation of its God to the Jewish mindset where God was Lord of the universe and he is, that was, that was a stumbling block. They could never get past that. To the Greeks who thought in terms of power and warfare, it made no sense. It was foolishness to side with the God who lost. Now we have lost the offense of the cross. Can I say this? And I realize I can't explain it well in the time that I have today. But we need to be careful. I know that we need to make our services culturally relevant and we need to reach this group this way and that group another way. I know that. I don't have any problem with that. But we need to be careful that we're not making the message of the cross inoffensive. In this culture, the cross is a symbol of fashion, not passion. Somebody asked Madonna, she was wearing a crucifix with Jesus hanging on it. She was interviewed in Playboy magazine. And no, I did not read Playboy magazine. I read the quote from Playboy magazine in Christianity today. So I just want to be sure that I didn't leave you wondering. <laughs> they said, we noticed that you, you liked the crucifix. You had a substantial crucifix on it. Does that, is that a reflection of faith? And this is what Madonna said. She said, no, it's nothing about faith. There's a naked man on it. And I love that anywhere I can find it. It's a symbol of fashion, not passion. It's a symbol of inclusivity, not exclusivity. Uh, now people wear a cross for dozens of different reasons. Let's just all coexist. Let's all get along together. Or this is just a beautiful symmetry of the cross or what have you. But it used to be a sign of shame. And the early Christians were dishonored by being marked with the cross. It has become a symbol of mysticism, not true spirituality. It has become a symbol of entering with Babylon, not coming out of Babylon. You've seen the bumper sticker, you know, coexist and there's a cross and all sorts of other religious symbols on it. Uh, the cross means we come together in Babylon. But the scripture says those of us who understand the cross, we come out of Babylon. And Hebrews 12, 2 puts it this way. Jesus endured the necessity of the cross, but dis despised the shame of it. Now, the word that's used to describe the, the cross is scandalous. We get scandal from it. The message of the cross is seen as a scandal to both Jews and Gentiles. If you don't see the cross as a shame-filled scandal, you don't know what took place on the cross. The Jews knew the punishment of the cross to be a curse. That's mentioned in Deuteronomy, and Paul repeats it in Galatians. They viewed it as a stumbling block to faith. Nobody in the Old Testament would have understood the cross as the path to God. It was a curse. 
It was something that was negative. It was a stumbling block to faith. The Greco-Roman mind considered it foolishness to place trust in the work of the cross. As I said before, in their minds, the God of Christianity was the loser in the realm of spiritual conflict. It's a scandal. It is a shameful thing, but it is the thing that all our hope is based upon. And God help us to understand that we don't need to make the cross inoffensive because the moment we succeed in making the cross inoffensive is the moment we've lost the power of the cross and the meaning of the cross. You say, well, uh, you know, pastor, you just need to understand what the cross is. I think that's a good idea. We, we say, well, the, you know, it's our baggage because everybody's got to carry their cross. It, it's, it's our baggage. No, a lot of our baggage is not even necessary. A lot of the baggage we carry is because of our own foolishness, our own sin, our own unforgiveness. No, I, I understand we all have baggage, but the goal is to get rid of all your baggage. You know, uh, we, we, we blame others for the struggle in our life. And because we won't forgive or we won't let go or we won't give it to God. And I know that's easier said than done. I know that. But let me tell you this. There's a lot of things in Christianity that are easier said than done, but the best option is not disobedience. We press through and we learn. The message of the cross is not baggage. If, if I carry baggage today, it's, it's almost without exception because of unforgiveness or lack of understanding or just poor perception. I don't have to carry baggage. I have to carry my cross, but I don't have to carry baggage. And thank God as we move through life, we're finding a way to drop more and more baggage. Okay. Now, my, my, goal, my goal is to let go of all these big suitcases and I, the only baggage I have, I want it to be a fanny pack. That's all I want to carry. And I want to get rid of that eventually. <coughs> Number two, the cross is not your thorn. Paul talked about, well, I have a thorn in the flesh. You know, um, I, I've actually had people tell me, well, you got to understand, I mean, I, I literally had someone tell me this. I am such an attractive person that the thorn I have to carry is that I'm, I'm attractive and I have to fight temptation all the time. And I said, you, you've, you've got some baggage, but it's not what you think it is, you know. <laughs> we laugh, but you know, we do that. No pastor understands me. No church lets me blossom to my potential. No, no Sunday school class understands the wisdom that I have to give. No, loved ones, we are carrying such trash and we think it's our cross to bear. No, it's baggage from your past, from your insecurities. You may have a thorn, but I want to tell you something about a thorn. A thorn is something that may be life altering, but it's something that we bear exclusively for God's glory. If all you can do is complain about it, it's not a thorn because that's your glory. 
The cross that I carry is not baggage. It's not a thorn. The cross that we must carry is what we carry or endure when we accept the trouble and difficulty that comes along with believing in Jesus and following him. Jesus carried his cross, but why did he carry the cross? Because in the garden, he prayed and said, Lord, if there is any way your will can be accomplished without me doing this, let me know. Nevertheless, if there's no other way, I'll carry this cross. The cross that we carry, the thing that we endure when we accept is when we accept the trouble and difficulty that comes along with believing in Jesus and following him. Now, in America, this is number four on your outline, we have become a culture that embraces a dangerous mix. The, the cross is volatile in America, and I'll tell you why. Because Americans over the past, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so, maybe, maybe longer, maybe less, it depends on where you start your study. But we believe we have a right to not be offended we think it's in the Constitution somewhere. The, you know, I have the right to not be offended. And the rights of others are subjugated by that perceived right to never be offended by anyone for any reason. America has bought into the stupidity. Let me be kinder. America has bought into the smart thinking challenged idea that we have a right. Our, our children go off to college and think they can boycott and protest anyone who speaks because they are offensive to some people. And so what happens is if I have the right to not be offended, I haven't noticed at the same time we have become a nation that is offended with everything. With everything. Now you say, Pastor, you're getting political now. No, I'm just talking common sense. We have a society where nobody has a right to offend us and we have the right to be offended over anything. So what it boils down to is we are moving and embracing with all of our heart the book of Judges where it says twice at the beginning and at the end that there was no leader because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The result is that anything that offends me should be illegal. Anything that offends me should be punishable by shaming, by shunning, by fines or imprisonment. So we're in a culture where everything is offensive and you don't have the right to present anything that's offensive to me. So what do we do when the core of our message is scandal? What do we do when the core of our message is offensible to all flesh? Well, what many churches have decided to do is we'll change the offense of the cross. We'll make it wonderful. We'll put little fruit loops on the edges of the cross <laughs> so that it's more palatable. Loved ones, the sin that God is judging American churches for is that we have lost the offense of the cross and we have substituted it with another message. Now, how did Christianity lose the offense of the, of the cross? Hey, we're trying to hurry here, so stay with me. Um, I've said this before. I don't need to spend a lot of time here. But the scripture says where there is no vision, 
the people perish. The people are unrestrained. And loved ones, I know that we've used that for 30 years to say that a church has got to have a vision because we don't have a vision, people perish. And, and I'm not trying to just beat a dead horse, but it's important that you understand that's not what that scripture is saying. That scripture is not saying a church has got to get a good vision statement. <coughs> that statement is saying this, when a culture moves away from divine revelation, people perish. See, in America, you, you can be forgiven anything except saying there is an absolute truth. And when we move away from absolute truth, then everyone does what's right in their own eyes. We raise up a generation of college students that don't understand there's a found, if you're going to build a building that's wonderful, but you've got to have a foundation. And you can't have a foundation that shifts and changes and is made of insufficient and inadequate material. So the writer in the Old Testament says, if the moment a nation sets aside the revelation from God, the unshakable, undeniable, authoritative truth, then people begin to perish. There's no restraint and the people will continue to do evil. Loved ones, I know that we're being told there's all kinds of, you know, things that can stabilize our society. And we begin to sing, put a little love in your heart. And we begin to, to revive the peace sign from the 60s. And we begin to say, make love, not war. But the fact of the matter is there is no foundation apart from an ultimate authoritative truth. We, we, history tells us that without that, we always go astray. And that's exactly what America has done. And the result is a society without restraint and, the, and, and it's the perishing of our societal structure. Look at letter B. Many segments of the church have been guilty of trying to make the message of the cross inoffensive. Now, I, I, I want to say this. I know that I'm going to anger some people. And I'm, not, I'm not trying to pick a fight. I'm really not. But we, even, even people that, have, that are from Bible-believing churches are not standing up for the truth of the word. They just say, well, they just have a different view. You know, well, the Bible says this. Well, yeah, but they just interpret that differently. I agree. It's called wrong. Does God give us a Bible that's as utterly unknowable as the Bible that churches are presenting today? Well, we have all of this stuff, but we don't really know what God meant. Loved ones, it goes back to Romans 1. It goes back to Romans 2. We have not chosen to stand on the word of God. So now we are remodeling God. We're remodeling the Bible. We have God 2.0. We have the Bible 2.0. And we have people saying that doctrine doesn't matter. Corey did a masterful job talking about this last week. And I know this sound, we don't want to become like the fighting fundies of a hundred years ago. The, 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 the fundamentals, they were called the fighting fundies because they weren't known for their doctrine. They were known for their fighting. We don't want to become the fighting fundies. But I want to tell you, 
we will know we will be no more successful than the churches and institutions of the world if we try to lessen the word of God and make it something less than it is. The Bible is not unknowable. God's will is not unknowable. I know what some people are doing. They are so devastated because they see people that they love that give no consideration of the word of God. Loved ones, the approach to that is not to forsake the word. The, the approach to that is to love the others into the kingdom. We've lost the offense of the cross. Let me, let me give you, let, let me, let me give you just three examples of ways we have lost the offense of the, of the cross. Number one, we have made this Bible doctrine, good works, not blood sacrifices, the basis of salvation. And a lot of people are happy to go down that path. Um, uh, uh, but this is what Paul said in Galatians 5.11. He says, He's, he was dealing with people that felt that you had to become Jewish before you could become Christian. It was the, it was the old thing that was settled in Acts chapter 15. You know, um, he said, you don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to observe the Jewish laws in order to become a Christian. He said, now you can do that if you want to, but he says works removes the offense of the cross. The cross is offensive because it says God suffered and died for those who are totally unworthy to receive his grace. And that is offensive. That is offensive. He says, but when you remove, uh, uh, um, excuse me, he said, when you base salvation on works, it removes the offense of the cross. Everybody says, yeah, the good go to heaven and the bad go to hell. And the, the offense of the cross is not, the effect is not what you think it was. The effect, the offense of the cross is lost when you try to make it better. My daddy was not raised serving the Lord. He, he came to the Lord dating my mother. I guess you call it dating. My mom was 13. He was 18. And my mom was raised in church. He wasn't raised in church. My dad said at age 12, I was an alcoholic. He said, she told me that if you're going to marry me, she said, my daddy's an alcoholic. If you're going to marry me, you've got you to leave alcohol alone. You've got to serve the Lord. And she was pretty intense. I was telling somebody a couple of days ago that they were sitting in a wagon. That's how long ago it was. They were sitting in a wagon and, and my dad had, had asked her to marry him. And, and um, she was, 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 um, she was 12 and her daddy said, that's too young to marry. So they waited a few weeks till she turned 13. And so the, they were counting down to the wedding and my dad reached over and this is the most he'd ever done. He said, he just put his leg on just right above her knee. He said, she looked at me and he said, I thought I was home free. And then there was a, a right uppercut that hit me, knocked me out of the wagon onto the ground. He said, and that little 13 year old fiance said, ain't none of that till we get married. <laughs> well, my dad's introduction into the kingdom was a rough one. <laughs> my, 
my dad served the Lord for years and years. And then there was a period in his life. I was a small child. Daddy got hurt by the church. He fell out. And there was a period, uh, I say fell out. He just quit going to church for the most part. He'd go sometimes to Sunday school. But during the 60s, there was, there was a period of several years that he just nursed that offense. He nursed that wrong. And I noticed um, when I was in my later teens, before I ever left home, my dad just started doing all kinds of things different. He quit this habit, he quit that habit, he quit the other habit. And it went on for several weeks. And all of a sudden, my dad wants to go to church on Wednesday night. He, hadn't, he didn't go to church at all right th during that time, except just a token appearance every now and then. And he went to church that night and gave his heart to the Lord, gloriously rededicated. And I said, Daddy, why? He said, I've been wanting to do that for months. I said, Daddy, why did you wait so long? And this is what he said. He said, I've been working for weeks to be worthy of his forgiveness. And I, and I was just a teenager. I said, Daddy, none of that was necessary. You come as you are. You come as you are. There's nothing you can do. I didn't tell him this then. I didn't know it then. But I, what I basically told him is there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do that will make him love you less. You come to him just as I am. And my daddy knew that and he, he never looked back. That's why Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, By grace are you saved. By grace. Through faith not of works. Now there's a place for works. There's a place for faith. We talked about that Wednesday night in our hope series, but it's by grace. God says, God says the blood sacrifice of Jesus is what welcomes you home. But a church says that's too offensive. So what you can do is just be the best person you can be. But loved ones, I want to tell you, it's, it's good news. You say, why is it good news? It's because you need to hear this. You can be the best person possible and still go to hell. Because it's by grace. It's by what he did, not by what we do. Number two is the second false teaching that churches are latching on to. Jesus didn't bear the wrath of God on the cross because God is love. I'm, I'm surprised how big a deal this is in theological circles. I'm not talking about with church members, but in theological circles, uh, any God that would require a blood sacrifice is a barbaric God. But listen to what 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says. That's one of the reasons the cross is an offense. My little children, <coughs> I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and the most loaded theological sentence in all of John's writings, at least the top, one of the top five, is in this next verse. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's a, that's a huge word. It's not one we use a lot. You don't name your child propitiation. You don't have a recipe, you know, propitiation chicken and ribs. It's a very special word, but it's a powerful word. And it means that Jesus was the full satisfaction. It means atoning sacrifice. But the history behind the word says this. It wasn't that Jesus was buying God off. 
It wasn't that Jesus said, oh, that's enough. That's enough. I mean, that God said, that's enough. You know, no more is necessary. No, there was a debt that had to be paid. God is a righteous God. There was no cutting a deal with him. Propitiation was necessary. Full payment. And the only thing, it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats. It wasn't restrictions of the law. It wasn't celebrating holy days. There is one thing and one thing only where God said, we're square. And it was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that sufficiently satisfied the wrath of God. <coughs> it set us free from guilt. It set us free from accusation. It set us free from death. And that's why John would later write this. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. That, that verse is so powerful. And it means literally that we don't even have an adequate word in English. The closest word in English for us is alien. What alien kind of love. But it doesn't mean like alien, alien. It means what love that must be of another dimension. There's nothing on earth to compare to the love of God that was shown that makes us the children of God. Churches also try this. Jesus is not the only way to salvation. Jesus is just one God among other gods. One um, theologian said this, and I agree wholeheartedly. He said, all religions are at best superficially similar, but fundamentally different. He said, all religions, you can find similarities. They're superficially similar, but fundamentally different. Let me tell you what the world says about the cross. Uh, this is Swami. I just call him Swami Joe because I can't pronounce his name. But the Swami of the Divine Life Society said, there are many this was at the Parliament of World Religions, 1993. There are many effective, equally valid religions. They are therefore to be equally reverenced, equally recognized, equally loved and cherished, not merely tolerated. You see... The church has begun to say that good works, not blood sacrifice, are the basis of salvation. The church has begun to say that God is love and there wasn't a necessity for all of this wrath on the cross. And thirdly, the church has begun to say, Jesus is a great guy, but he's not the only way to salvation. That leads me to two Christian life lessons that we will close with this morning. Two statements. Two statements only. They're packed, but just two. Loved ones, we as a church must understand this. Now hear me, everybody in here would agree with what I'm about to say, probably. Now you might be surprised. There's a, there have been, oh, I don't know, maybe a dozen, 15 people through the years that have wanted, maybe more, now that I think of it, probably more, that have wanted to be members of Christian life. But when you get right down to it, they like the church, they like the worship, they like the feeling, but they don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. You say, well, who are they? <laughs> they never made it to membership. They never made it to membership. Now we told them they were welcome to come, but sooner or later they left.
This is going to sound harsh, but I need to say it. I need to be sure you hear it. There is only one message that can save us. And it is the message of the cross. Jesus, who died a fully substitutionary death, absorbing the wrath of God and salvation is offered to us, not for our good works, but because of his good work on the cross. That's why it's called the foolishness of the message or foolishness of preaching in King James. It refers to the message, not the act of preaching. Listen to me. The gospel is designed to be a, tra- is, is, let me, I'm trying to hurry. The gospel is not designed to be attractive at first glance. A church that tries to make the gospel attractive at first glance, even if their intent is to make it more palatable to people, they're going to find that it backfires on them because the message of the cross is an offensive message until the Holy Spirit touches our heart in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. See, Jesus said when the Holy Spirit has come, he will tell you the truth about sin. He will tell you the truth about righteousness. He will tell you the truth about judgment. You see, until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the truth about those three things, we we can accept all kinds of gospels and none of them are saving. I want you to understand the gospel message is not an innately attractive message. You say, oh, pastor, I love it. It's because your eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit. It's because you know him. But, but not to the world. This is what Isaiah said, looking at Messiah. He said, there is no beauty we should see in him. <laughs> I had a fellow preach a sermon in hermeneutics class uh, when we were in Bible college. He said, Jesus was ugly. And he went on talking about how Jesus was ugly. And I, I think he was just wanting to make himself feel better. I don't know. But at the end of it, the the professor so beautifully said, hey, it's not that Jesus was ugly. He says, what this means is that his presentation of Messiah, there was nothing about it that we'd say, oh, yeah, that's beautiful. Let me buy into it. There was nothing that we should desire of him, no beauty that we should find in him until we understand the full truth of the gospel. Can I tell you something, loved ones, and and especially to to our younger generation, you need to understand this. You must first know that you're damned before you can be saved. You must first know you're lost before you can be found. I I told Wednesday night about how I grew up in church. There's never been a time in my life that I didn't feel like I loved Jesus. I'm never, I I never went through a, a, a period of rebellion that lasted more than 15, 20 minutes. I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying I was a good boy. I'm just saying I was raised in church in a good church, praying parents. God's been so good to me. But even though I feel like I love Jesus all my life, when I was a little boy in Booster Band, the Booster Band, everybody come up and sing in Booster Band. At the end of Booster Band, we'd sing into my heart, into my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. I prayed that with all fervency. I prayed that with all energy. But there came a day when I was passing out of innocence into accountability. 
And I can tell you when it was. And I knew that day, even though I had never consciously gone astray from my church upbringing, I knew that day I was lost. I was a sinner. I had broken God's law and I had broken God's heart. And that day I came to an altar that I'd been to every Sunday of my life to pray in the booster band. But that day I came to the altar understanding that I am a, I am a young man. I mean, just a little fella, you know, elementary school, but I'm a young man who has broken God's law and I've broken God's heart. And I want to do more than just know Jesus as the gentle shepherd. I want to know him as the Lord of my life. It's the only message that can save us. I had to become damned before I could be saved. I had to become lost before I could be, be found. Now, here's the second thing. Pastor, if what you're saying is true, how do we present the cross in this secular society? These are three things that I just think we need to tweak. And again, I think Corey probably did a better job of this last week than I'm doing this week. But here's number one. We have to share our message of faith with unbelievers. This is not the time to circle the wagons and say society hates us. This is the time to spread the message. This is the time to spread the message. In his book, The Church in Babylon, this is what Erwin Lutzer says. God said, this is talking about the importance of the message. God says, in effect, I think so much of what Jesus did when he died on that cross that I can even forgive a criminal if he believes in Jesus, but I cannot forgive a sane, decent, tax-paying American who doesn't believe in Jesus. Loved ones, we have got to reclaim the offense of the cross and we have got to, in our preaching, not tell everybody that you're inherently connected with God and he just wants you to recognize that. We are separated. All we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Number two, how do we serve in this community? By lovingly, unselfishly serving our community. See, again, the church, when persecution begins, the church through the years has a tendency to withdraw. But when persecution begins, that's when we need to serve. One theologian said, tell me how much you've entered into the world of those around you, and I can tell you how much you love them. Treat every person as one for whom Christ died, and not only that, but treat them as though they were the only one for whom he died. And here's the last thing. This is tough. This is tough. Okay, what, what did we say now? In, in number one, share our message of faith. Share the right message of faith. Uh, lovingly, unselfishly serve our community. Here's number three. By accepting rejection without retaliation. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who are abusive to you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic from him either. Loved ones, it is the principle, the kingdom grows by the principle of opposite behavior. Paul said to the Corinthians, up to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. 
and we labor working with our own hands. When we are verbally abused, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we reply as friends. We have become the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. <coughs> and Peter says this, for you have been called for this purpose. This is why you're called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow in his steps. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Loved ones, I want to tell you, this is the challenge I want to give you. From, for the next 30 days, turn off the thing that fuels your anger. You say, I know what you're saying, Pastor. Don't watch the news. Uh, nah, I, I don't know if you need to watch the news or not, but I tell you what you do need to turn off. You need to turn off so-called Christians that get you so upset you can't see straight. You need to turn off the social media that has made you hate church and hate your fellow brothers and sisters and renounce all things that have worked for you. I tell you, I, I don't have the ability to, to, to put things into your life 24 seven. I'm outgunned, I'm outnumbered, but you can turn off some of the crap. There's the theological words. It comes from the Greek crapzos. Loved ones, I'm just telling you, some of you need to turn off the inflammatory stuff and you need to commit for 30 days. Just try this. Try opposite behavior. You say, wow, that's radical Christianity. No, that's basic Christianity. That's basic Christianity. This is where we are. I believe we are at the time... We are at the time. We're, we're talking about a harvest. We're ready for the harvest. And, and I believe that we're entering the era of the harvest. But I tell, you, I tell you what I really feel. I really feel this. I feel that we've got to decide where we are at this beginning of the harvest. Are we ready to plant seeds that are going to make the harvest come? You say, oh, well, seeds have already been planted. There's more seeds to be planted. There's more work to be done. Are we going to be that group of Christians that says we're going to keep planting seed because we will reap if we don't faint? I want to ask you this. Are you or are you that kind of Christian that was set to be cut down and just moved out of the way because it never produced any fruit? And the worker said to the owner of the land, he said, master, give me one more year with this tree. Give me one more year with this plant. Let me dig around it. Let me work around it. Let me see if I can change the trajectory of where it's going. And if things don't change, then do with it as you will. Now, I know that's not very popular and I know it doesn't sound very loving, but lovings, I think that's where the church of the Lord Jesus is. I think denominations are there. I think districts are there. 
I think church leaders are there. I think pastors are there. I think churches are there. I think Christians are there. We're at the point where we need to decide how am I going to spend the energy and the years that I have left? Am I going to let critics dictate the way I spread what seed I have? Or am I going to open my life to the work of the Holy Spirit where he says, I'm going to do a deeper work in you and you can change. Loved ones, the message of judgment is you can change. You can change. Well, Pastor, I've been done wrong. We've all been done wrong. We've all been misunderstood. We've all been mistreated on some level or another. And that means two things. That means, number one, we must not lessen anybody's pain. When I say we've all been hurt, I don't mean your hurt is nothing. Your hurt may be far worse than mine. But what I'm saying is you are not unique in this world in the way you've suffered. Your decision is, am I going to focus on my pain or am I going to let God do something phenomenal in me? You got you to decide that because the church is going on. The kingdom's going to be built. The question is, are we going to be a part of the building or are we going to just be moved over as spectators? That's the decision we've got to make. Father, as we wrap it up today, thank you, Lord, for letting me do the altar service first. Thank you for setting people free from depression. Thank you for helping folks with accusation. Now, Lord, we want to, I know we're going to shift gears next week and begin to go in a different direction. But Lord, what I want us to understand is we have taken the punches of hell over the last year and we're still standing. But don't let us make the mistake of thinking it's in our own strength. You have kept us standing. You have kept us strong. And you have a purpose. You said to Israel in their darkest day, I know the plans I have for you, and it's not to destroy you. It's to give you a future. So, Lord, we're reporting today for our future. We're reporting for our future. We're going to carry our cross and stop carrying baggage. We're going to be instruments that the Holy Spirit works on. He digs around us. We're going to be walls that have been broken down, but the great Nehemiah will rebuild. The great restorer will replace. Father, thank you for coming to our brokenness and reestablishing the temple. Lord, we were all hopelessly broken, but you came and rebuilt the temple of God in our lives. Lord, now, now help us to rebuild the walls of our personality. Help us to realize that we can only be full to the extent that our walls are rebuilt. Using my barrel as an example. Thank you for helping us in Jesus' name. Amen.